The word multimedia is the use of a variety of artistic or communicative media using more than one medium of expression or communication. Café is a type of establishment that serves coffee and is known as a place where information can be exchanged. The following is the audio version of the Multimedia Café. And a happy Tuesday, you folks. Tuesday, January 29th, 2019. Welcome to the Multimedia Café. My name is Jason Spees. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation, and being part of our program today. Here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where we embrace modern technology. Interviews, you never know who you're going to run into or what you're going to talk about or how you're going to talk to them. Could be over Skype, could be over Facebook, could be over uh, the phone, maybe a face-to-face interview. We here at the Multimedia Cafe have embraced all forms of communication, and that's why we bring you the Multimedia Cafe. Okay. Let's take a look at what we have going on in today's program. We've got a fantastic program lined up. Roe Patterson, he's the author of Crude Blessings. He shares the story of his father, who's Glenn Patterson, his rise in the energy industry. He also explains how growing up in the energy industry really shaped him as a person, as an individual, as someone who really understood the value of work. Roe Patterson attributes his drive for entrepreneurship to that energy industry. So Roe Patterson coming up. He's an author talking about his father, Glenn Patterson. Fantastic interview, fantastic person, fantastic father. It's uh, one that you're going to want to stick around for and uh, check out here on the Multimedia Cafe. And then a little animal tech. Mick Hager with Canine Pipe Inspections talks about how leaks take the path of least resistance. Now... What I mean by that is a dog can actually have better sense than a lot of these new age sensors they have. So the old adage of animal tech, the dogs, we talk with Mick Hager about it. She explains how basically through a dog's mobility and acute sense of smell, it allows for a thorough scan of an area to really check to make sure that there's any leaks, something that technology may have missed. So... So a little animal tech talk in the program coming up. All that plus much more on today's episode of the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies and this is the Multimedia Cafe. Over the past few months, I've told you about how unbelievable hatch coaching is. Don't just take my word for it. Listen to what Christy Huber, president of the United Way of Cass Clay, says about hatch coaching. I think it's a really exciting time for our young leaders today because um, leaders like Eric Hatch are changing the face of what it means to lead an organization or what it means to lead a brand. He's changing that. For many years, I think that the, the gold standard of leadership has been somebody who is very polished and has it all together or seemingly has it all together and throughout the years. Um, I think that we've now, especially with technology and social media, we are drawn to what's real. 
To find out more about Hatch Coaching or to have Eric Hatch speak at your event or company, visit HatchCoaching.com. That's HatchCoaching.com. Or call 701-212-1572. That's 701-212-1572. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you. And the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts. And then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio. And if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Hello, my name is Otis with Kids in Capitalism at Dacknell Games, and today we're here with Luke Russell, and we're going to ask him some questions about his business. So first question, this isn't really about your business, but what was your first job? Like, what was my first job? Yeah. Uh, I would say working at Kmart. Working at Kmart? Was my very first job, yeah. All right. That was when I was 16. 16? All right. So, um, what advice do you have for young entrepreneurs? Uh, I would say uh, find something that you're passionate about first and then uh, see what you can do with it because if it's something you don't like and it's something that you can't uh, pursue, then uh, you're not going to go very far. So, All right. What's your favorite video game? My favorite video game? Xenogears. Xenogears? Xenogears. Right. It's an older one, but it's... Uh, what type of customers do you have? Uh, every walk of life, basically. No, seriously. Like I've got, I've got doctors from uh, Seattle, Washington, that have ordered stuff for Warcraft conventions, like to, for Blizzard. I've got, yeah, no. I mean, I've got pretty much every walk of life. It doesn't doesn't matter. I mean, all right, all right. That's actually funny. <laughs> What's your um, favorite cosplay costume that you've made? Favorite cosplay costume that I made, huh? Um, I think Samus. Oh, Samus is cool. I like Samus. Samus, and uh, I just made a Death Trooper costume. Death Trooper? Yep, from the newer uh, Star Wars Rogue One. Oh, that's Um, neat. And it was custom fit because the the girl I made it for is only 5'3", so she's really short. So we had to do a lot of customization, but it came out really nice. So can you tell us a little bit about 3D printing? Uh, Sure. So... Basically, uh, depending on, on uh, what your price point is when you're starting, um, this is a, an entry-level kit. This is kind of like my take-around kit. Um, this is like the, the bottom dollar. So in order to use this, you kind of have to know a little bit more about 3D printing or want to learn because you build this from the ground up. Yeah. And uh, there are ones that are a little more expensive you get tech support with. Not so much work. <laughs> But I like these ones because of the technical aspect. Um, it's nice because basically, like when I got it here, there's the one coin at the back there that's kind it's of kind of burnt, yeah. kind of messed up, and it's because I I had to re-level the bed because it moved from my house to here, oh. and so like the bed got out of level. So um, you always have to kind of tinker with it and, and get it where you want it. So movement, like, recalibrates the plate? Um, well, yeah, because, like, 
you see it's on springs here? Yeah. So it's not actually in place. I could sit there and just squeeze it, and, like, that end will just get all funky because I completely tilt the bed. So, like, when we're moving, like, the way the springs are, when we're moving in the truck and I hit big potholes, sometimes it can, like, make the screws latch in at a different angle. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, uh, basically, it'll it'll cause, like, miscalibrations that I just have to kind of fix. All right. Well, that's pretty neat. I think that concludes our interview here with... Luke Russell. At Dankno Games. Thank you, sir. You can't fake it, you're gonna make it, you gotta live it. I got a big bus with a TV and a bar. And a little room in the back for me and my old guitar. I gotta stop and fuel up every 500 miles. Give a picture to the waitress, eat a late breakfast, country style. That's my life, yeah, y'all, and I love it. That's my life, there ain't nothing else in the world above it. And I see people all alone picking their guitars, playing their songs. I tell them, forget it. Cause you can't fake it, you're gonna make it, you gotta live it. We get home from Nashville on a Monday night. Record songs on Tuesday and on Wednesday we take out the wife. But then on Thursday night, it's back on the road. I don't care if it's North Dakota or Southern Minnesota, just as long as I grow. Well, that's my life, yes, y'all, and I love it. Well, that's my life, there ain't nothing else in the world above it. I see people all alone Picking their guitars, playing their songs And I tell them, forget it Cause you can't fake it If you're gonna make it, you gotta live it Yeah, brother, you can't fake it If you're gonna make it, you gotta live it Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken I totally agree with you And the word that you brought into this is fact You tell the facts and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Speece on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Speece, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Speece. Back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spees. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation. All right, let's get right into our interview here with Ro Patterson. He's the author of Crude Blessings. Uh, this is Ro Patterson. I'm the author of uh, the book Crude Blessings. Crude Blessings. Boy, I tell you what, here on the Crude Life and Crude Oil, my guess is this book has something to do with oil and gas. What do you think? Yeah, well, my, my dad was a kind of a pioneer in the oil and gas industry and uh, uh, built a drilling company in the late 70s uh, with starting with one rig. And uh, today, the, the, that same company has almost 300 rigs and it's worth uh, over $4 billion of market cap. So uh, definitely a, a kind of an uh, 
uh, a neat success story. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Let's talk a little bit about your background, if, if you wouldn't mind a little bit. Um, you know, oil and gas is uh, kind of a niche area, even though it, you know, it powers so much of what we do. And, you know, I think it was the only sector that added jobs over the last decade. But uh, to, you know, go into depth like this, into detail, there's not a lot really like this from the kind of humanistic side of things. So talk to me about your background with oil and gas. You know, I grew up in the industry once Dad uh, founded the company. Um, you know, early on, early in, in my life, uh, my dad was a school teacher and a basketball referee. He had worked his way through college uh, roughnecking uh, and uh, knew a lot about uh, the oil and gas industry, but never really had any designs on coming back to it. And um, his brother-in-law and he got to talking over Thanksgiving turkey in 1977 and decided to get into uh, back into the business and then to start a drilling company with one rig. So as I was growing up, that's really all I ever knew. Um, I, I uh, had designs to, uh, you know, in high school to, to leave the industry just like Dad did. I wanted out, uh, you know, I'm working uh, in high school uh, for my dad and, and even as a young kid for my dad in the oil field, I thought, man, this is tough work, it's hard work, I'd, I'd, I'd rather do anything but this. Um, so I was set out to be a doctor and uh, went to college to be a physician. And it uh, wasn't until kind of right at the end of my undergraduate degree that I decided, man, I'm, I really don't want to be a doctor and I'm not going to be a very good one because my, I think my bedside manner wasn't very good. And, uh, you know, and I had the call. I, had, I, I felt the pull of the oil and gas industry. There's a lot of nostalgia with it. And once it's in your blood, it, it's, it's hard to get rid of. And, uh, and, and I felt drawn back to the industry, and, and so that's what I did. I, went, I, I decided not to go to medical school and uh, went back to work for uh, Caterpillar, uh, actually, in their uh, engine division, the uh, uh, large industrial engine, oil field engines um, in particular. And uh, it wasn't long after that that Patterson drilling uh, by then was a, about a 80-rig company um, went, had gone on a buying spree. They had accessed the public markets and had gone and done an IPO in 1993. And by 1997, they were really busy trying to consolidate the drilling market. And my dad talked me into coming back to work for the company at that time. And I stayed there four years, uh, or almost four years, had a, had a great experience working for uh, Patterson, working for my family. Um, learned a ton about running not only a drilling company and an oil and gas company, but a, but a, a public company on top of that. Um, but uh, later, uh, right before the UTI-Patterson uh, merger, um, I decided that I wanted to go out on my own. Um, and uh, really start uh, trading my own water and you know doing doing my own uh, path and so i went out and started some businesses uh oil field related uh on my own um and i uh, did that for about five years when i uh, decided to sell those businesses and and really cash out um i really didn't know what i was going to do next and but but um 
the company I work for today, Basic Energy Services, had become a very large client of mine. Uh, I built a lot of equipment for them and um, had gotten to know the CEO uh, very well, and, and so he and I were friends, and he talked me into coming to work for the company, um, and the rest is history. Now I run that company today, and now I'm the CEO of that company and have been since 2013, so been here almost uh, almost 13 years, and uh, it, it's, it's been a great choice. I'm glad I, I chose BASIC as a, as a home. BASIC uh, was a lot like Patterson Drilling in the, in the um uh, early days, uh, very uh, employee-minded, very uh, similar ethics, similar uh, you know kind of integrity and core values uh, to the company, and that attracted me. Uh, so um, you know I was used to that with Pat Patterson, and um, so when I came to Basic, um, it was it was it was like uh, riding a bike. You know I I, uh, I enjoyed how uh, similar the companies were, and so it was a, it was a. It was a shoe that just fit, and uh, you know, little by little, I kept uh, moving up to the ranks at Basic, and uh, and then, like I say, I became CEO at, at uh, in 2013 at at the age of 39. So, if you became CEO at the age uh, 2013, you've been uh, overseeing the integration of technology. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the, the, the business has has changed so much in the last. Um, three to, to five years, it's incredible. Um, the business is so, so different. Uh, you know, hardly do we do we do any vertical work today. It's all horizontal, long lateral um, uh, wells, that, you know, the new wells that are coming on. Now, we still do a lot of work to those older vertical wells, but, but all of the new wells and all the technology that's advanced in the industry, it's mind-blowing. Um, what we, how different the, the the industry is, just in just in a three to five year span. Uh, just a couple other questions about the industry, and then we'll get into your book. Uh, as long as I got the wealth of knowledge on the line here, Roe Patterson, with us, and um, the job market has changed significantly too. The the advent of technology has really changed changed the um, job market. You mentioned the kind of disappearing or the niche industry that vertical wells have become we used to joke five years ago that when the technology started coming in these guys ain't slinging chains anymore i mean have you have you noticed much about the change of the workforce you know it, it definitely has changed it it always it, it, it's always a, a kind of a, a strange dynamic you know every, every time i think that that the, the oil field has really changed there's there's still so much that's the same uh but but Definitely the, the caliber of employee and the knowledge that they have to have and their abilities uh, has changed. Um, and so uh, the, the employees in our industry are very adaptable. Um, and, and as the technology has, uh, you know, the, that level has increased, the employees matched it uh, with their skill set. So um, I, 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 it always amazes me to see how um, our, our industry rises to any kind of challenge or, or uh, you know, technological advancement. Um, our folks, uh, in particular, have just done a fantastic job of, of uh, changing with the times. But we definitely do more automation. We keep people, uh, you know, hands and fingers uh, out of harm's way much more than we used to. Uh, like you say, 
slinging chains is, a, is kind of a thing of the past. It definitely is. Uh, now, you know, we still have people get hurt uh, because people still find a way to, uh, you know, do something that they shouldn't do. But but uh, but as an industry, by and large, we've really gotten better at um, uh, trying to keep uh, all of our workers out out of harm's way and to automate our systems as much as possible uh, so that uh, we don't have those opportunities where anyone can get Hurt. It's been quite an evolution over the past five, six, seven years, decade, if you will, just uh, with the technology, the changing workforce from the, like you mentioned, the automation, the safety requirements to the safety procedures, everything that goes with it. Um, let's transition over to crude blessings a, a little bit. Uh, you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, let's focus on the book a little bit. Um, what, what, just to start with a basic one, what was your inspiration behind writing the book? Well, I just thought it was a great story. I was actually talking to my kids one day. Uh, I had an eighteen-year-old son and a sixteen-year-old daughter, and I was talking to them about their grandfather and you know, kind of the legacy and, uh, of, of starting a, a one-rig company that ended up being you know, three hundred rigs strong and uh, the second-largest drilling contractor in the world. And and uh, you know, kind of how that all developed, and it, it struck me because they just didn't know pieces and parts of the story as much as I I wanted them to, and had hoped they would. And um, you know, it dawned on me that so much had happened of, uh, of that story when they were weren't even alive, or, or when they were very young. And I thought, you know, this is just a that's that's a mistake. It's, it's one of these things that people should know this story, not not just my kids and my family, but everyone should know this story. It's just because it's a fantastic story. And uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a life. Uh, you know, Dad's life was full of, of lots of trials and uh, and some tribulation. And um, you know, for for all the success, there were lots of hurdles and lots of failures too. And- Mr. Roe Patterson, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back. We're going to continue the conversation with Roe Patterson, the author of Crude Blessings, the story of his father, Glenn Patterson, how his rise in the energy industry came, and how growing up in the industry shaped his work ethic and drive for entrepreneurship. In just a moment, we continue our interview with Roe Patterson, author of Crude Blessings, right here on the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation. All right, up next, we continue our conversation with Roe Patterson, the author of Crude Blessings. You know, for, for all the success, there were lots of hurdles and lots of failures, too. And, and you learn more probably from the failures than you do from anything else. And, uh, you know, in overcoming all kinds of adversity. Uh, and Dad had a lot in his life. Uh, but he had a lot of success, too. And, uh, and this, this mantra of, of doing the right thing and always doing the right thing uh, is a little bit lost in our society today. Um, you know, I don't hear as much of that integrity and, uh, you know, morality uh, talk as, as I think I heard when I was growing up. I don't hear enough of that today, of, you know, treating people like you want to be treated and really taking care of people in the business space. Um, because if you can do that at work and you can do that in your business, then, you know, it'll follow you into your personal life, too. And uh, you don't hear enough of that. You know, you, you hear about a lot of cutthroat kind of um, edgy business practices out there and not a lot of this, um, 
you know, camaraderie and what's good for everyone, you know, should be good for everyone, et cetera. And, um, and if it's not good for everybody, then let's don't do it. You know, that kind of, and that's the way dad ran his business. That's the way he ran his life. Um, you know, it didn't matter whether you're talking about his dealings with competitors, with customers, with vendors, uh, or his employees who were, who were so important to him. Um, he treated them the same way. Um, you know, I can remember, I did the book, uh, one of his competitors showing up in his yard and needing a, a vital piece of equipment because his particular piece of equipment had failed and he was in a bind. He was in a huge bind. He couldn't, he couldn't get that piece of equipment from any vendor and, and he knew dad had a spare piece of uh, this particular equipment and, and dad gave it to him without thinking. You know, he, he loaned him the piece of equipment without thinking. You know, here's a competitor, you know, somebody he's outbidding against every day for work and, and you know, without a moment's hesitation, he gave this guy a piece of equipment. Didn't ask for a nickel, didn't ask for any rent, he just he just gave it, and and that's that's something that I think is missing in uh, in business today and in, in our lives and our, our society today. And, you know, those that kind of thought um, and process, uh, and so so that that's part of the story, and, and I wanted to share it, and I wanted people to hear it, and uh, you know, um, and I wanted to memorialize, uh, you know, uh, a guy that I think did a, did a good job of uh, of just life. Well, I certainly think that's a relevant topic or subject matter, if you will, that part of the story where you're talking more about integrity and um, just some basic uh, um, good old-fashioned, honest, ethical capitalism, if you will. And and the reason I wrote that down was because just uh, last week we were having a conversation about a dozen of us were and it was the the words were uttered that we wondered if honesty was considered a weakness in today's world. People who were honest were considered weak. And um, kind of listening to some of the things you were talking about there, it kind of went in line with that. Where uh, it, it it seems like we're getting to that point now. And I'm looking at the the recap of your book, and you've got the word faith in there. How important is uh, faith in the oil industry? I've, I've argued for a long time that it's it's a very important vein of the industry. Did, did, you mentioned in your book is the only reason I, I bring it up. You care to comment on that part of it? Sure. Um, you know, it, I think you're right. It's very important um, in our industry, um, probably in our industry in particular. Um, you know, when you have uh, the kind of cycles that we go through, um, you know, ups and downs, you, you, you dang sure pray a lot, uh, you know, to get through these bad patches. Uh, you know, it, uh, for Dad, I'll just say that faith was a tough thing. Um, he didn't come to faith until the end of his uh, life. And really the sickness that he developed uh, uh, through Alzheimer's um, is, is one of the one of the bright spots and the silver lining of that disease was that it brought him to faith. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that it shouldn't take a disease, you know, to break you down. Um, you should want to you should want to, uh, you know, find your faith and find your, uh, your relationship with God earlier than that. It shouldn't, it shouldn't take a disease to get you there. It did for dad, but it, it should for everyone. Um, and, uh, but I think in our industry, by and large, you know, faith is not talked about a lot. It's a little bit, um, uh, whatever you, not PC, uh, to, to talk about faith openly, uh, but 
but I I would say in my industry and in my experience, uh, men and women of faith are more prevalent than than anyone can imagine. So, um, you know, I think when it, when it is discussed and it is out there for discussion, I find uh, our industry is full of uh, believers. Another part of the book that I find interesting is the um, growing up in a, I guess, an oil industry household, you know, um, in today's world of startups and, you know, startups are different now than they were 20 years ago, even Uh, the old, uh, take the Apple, those guys started in a garage. It wasn't until they got a couple hundred G's till they got rolling. And, um, you know, a lot of times the oil and gas companies are kind of like that. By, they just have to be because the fluctuation of oil prices go up and down so much that, you know, by the time you feel comfortable to leave, live a lavish life, well, oil prices are down and now you're eating beans and rice again. So you try to balance it is what I'm saying. But um, what, what, what do you make about like today's current startup culture and just kind of what you grew up with, your interpretation of what, you know, a business is and then what we're kind of with today? Well, I think the two, well, the thing that I would say is the biggest difference is the, where the capital sources are today versus where they were, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, when you needed capital for a startup, you either went and raised money from, you know, a few close and personal friends or associates that would, would invest with you, or you went to the bank, or you did both, which is the way Patterson got started. Uh, you know, they... They, they raised a little bit of equity um, and some and some startup working capital from a few small investors, and then they went and, and borrowed the rest uh, from a commercial lender. Uh, that's not the way most entrepreneurial efforts get started today. Today, private equity, these big private equity firms, who have multiple limited partnerships, uh, limited partners that are that are that are investing in these big private equity outfits, they're the ones that fund, um, you know, the majority of the startups and the entrepreneurial efforts within our industry, both on the exploration and production company side and on the service company side where I'm at. That is extraordinarily different, Um, mainly because they don't have any kind of lending restrictions. They don't have any kind of uh, obstacles that they have to jump through. They really don't most of the time don't have to raise a bunch of, of private capital or equity uh, to get funded. You know, it's all funded by the, by the PE firm. Um, and so that's a different, that's a different animal. Uh, you see ownership and, and, and people who develop these businesses have less and less skin in the game. Uh, you know, when dad was starting a company, you know, his butt was on the line. He, 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 he wrote the check, you know, and, and he personally guaranteed the notes. So did my uncle, Claus Talbot. And so their entire livelihood was at risk, um, you know, along with the fate of the company and the fate of the investors who had put money into the, into the company. You don't see that today. Today, it's really just the private equity that has uh, money at risk. And a lot of the principal players within the companies, they don't have a lot of skin in it. Uh, it's, it's certainly not their, li- their whole livelihood or their whole uh, fortunes that are, you know, are invested. They don't have personal guarantees. So... Um, 
you know, their rear ends aren't, aren't on the line like they used to be um, back in back in those days. So I think those are the two biggest differences I see is, is how the you know how people get their money and get their capital today uh, so much different than than how it was uh, back when Dad got started. What do you think people will take away from when they read this book, and uh, what did you take away from when you wrote it? For me, it was extraordinarily therapeutic. I mean, I, I lost Dad in 2015 to, to Alzheimer's, you know, uh, after a nine-year battle, and it was sad. Um, I, I miss him greatly, uh, you know, running a company today. I wish I had his, uh, you know, his ear and his, and, and his advice. Uh, uh, sometimes today, because he always had good advice and, and uh, would always keep you kind of, uh, you know, back to your roots of, of doing what's right and, and always making that, you know, kind of first and foremost in your thought process. So I miss him. And uh, the, writing the book was therapeutic for me. It's, it felt good and a lot of tears, um, but a lot of laughs too uh, uh, in putting the book together. Uh, uh, I hope most people, when they read it, I hope it's just a good story. I hope it's inspirational that there's nothing in your life that you can't overcome. And I'd like to thank Roe Patterson, the author of Crude Blessings, for taking the time out to share the story of his father's rise in the energy industry. That's Roe Patterson, author of Crude Blessings. All right, we continue on here at the Multimedia Cafe. We're going to sit down with Mick Hager with Canine Pipe Inspections. Talk a little animal tech right here on the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe. I am washed by the water, even when the earth crumbles under my feet. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation. All right, coming up next, we got Mick Hager with Canine Pipe Inspections. We're talking a little animal tech, how they detect pipeline leaks, and outperform some of the best technology out there. This is Mick Hager with Canine Pipe Inspections. My name is Michaela Hager. I am the owner and trainer for Canine Pipe Inspections. Canine pipe inspection. Boy, that is kind of an old school way to get leaks nowadays, but I love it. I, I think it's um, one of the more exciting things about oil and gas. So talk to me a little bit about um, just your current state of business. You know, everybody's talking about pipeline monitors and all these other things. So when I saw what you were doing, I thought, oh, I've got to get Mick on the air to talk about what she's doing. What a fantastic uh, um, little side niche area for the oil and gas industry and I imagine other things too but talk a little bit about just your current state of business do you mind doing that or sure what we do is we have our chain on hand it's more of a simple solution for a complex problem oftentimes we are the ones that get called after technology fails so to speak um, the leak isn't found and companies are looking for other solutions we have a minimum of two bugs that go on a job, and we have a proprietary odorant. That odorant is injected in the lines, which means we're versatile. We can be, our canine teams can be used on oil or gas pipelines. We're also great at finding illegal packs. These dogs are uh, really great at pinpointing leaks and finding small cracks also. 
Well, I think the the whole canine thing is absolutely remarkable. I mean, I've done stories before on um, canines for finding uh, bombs as well as money in the backyard. People have hired canines to train them to go smell money, and they think some long-lost relative buried. I mean, it's amazing the different things that the canines can do. Do, do you... Are you schooled at all? Are you versed at all to talk about the accuracy and the just sheer amazement that a canine has when it comes to sense? Are, are you able to talk about that? It's actually very surprising that canines aren't used more in this field. Their accuracy and ability just it far exceeds any technology. You have technology that usually can find things at parts per million. These dogs are known to go well beyond parts per billion and even a molecular level. Their absolute accuracy to actually see these dogs work live is really amazing because they have been known to find pinhole leaks, um, cracks, the kind of thing that you wouldn't expect them to find, and they can go down to the deepest depths of any existing pipeline. Now, I don't know if it's just because I am a former bloodhound owner, had one for... A number of years and he passed away two years ago and I think this is the first year where I feel like I'm able to actually have another dog now after my passing of my bloodhound and he, he really gave me a whole new identity in terms of what they can bloodhounds bring. I also had a German Shepherd and so just the two of those dogs opened my eyes to really um just their amazing skills. They're absolutely amazing skills. And, uh, you, you know, I, I often joke that, you know, humans, the intelligent race, well, I don't know so much about that when I get around some of those dogs. But um, how how do oil companies react when you, when, when you pitch them or you talk to them about this type of technology? Because really, it's, it's, a, it's a human, it's an animal technology, I guess. There is a dog but you can't do demonstrations and that's probably the biggest sell point is have someone actually see it in action it's almost immediate believers once they actually see it but I can't show a piece of paper with numbers I have to actually show the real life action and that's what makes it truly remarkable and believable when you see what these dogs can do has the uh, world of social media and uh, email and internet and everything like that, has, has that been pretty beneficial for you in terms of sending maybe like a video of the dogs in action or something along those lines? Or do, do they still need to see it firsthand and actually touch the dog and be around it? More of a tangible type of a of thing as opposed to an electronic you know, tool, I guess. what makes the strongest impression because everyone's going to go to what they naturally believe in and when these industries, these oil and gas industries have used technology for so long to switch to something new that feels like a risk although videos and photos are great, actually seeing it in action is what makes true believers in this but I do make a point of posting as many videos as possible to just show and document what these dogs are capable of how about when it comes to, you mentioned accuracy earlier, uh, talk to me about the team that you have, either from the human standpoint, from the training aspect or the maintenance aspect, and then the number of dogs. I think you mentioned you, you send out two dogs 
per per um, job or something along is what I wrote down two dogs. So explain that part of it too. And do you guys do ongoing training? Uh, I know that originally there's there's a training that's done, and then is there any secondary or additional afterwards, or is it that they just that it's now part of their existence? The most important aspect is our proprietary odorant that we use is an incredibly efficient system, and it's industry approved odorant. Um, the amount of accuracy we get from this odorant system, once these dogs start on this training program, they're on it. And they're more or less, their work ethic is over and beyond. My dogs will actually beg by their work harnesses wanting to go out and work. And on top of that, this odorant system was actually developed and tested by Imperial Oil and ExxonMobil. Okay. I get it. And then... You're based out of Idaho. You live in Idaho. Um, are there a number of shale plays that you're in? Do you guys just primarily stick around that region? Or talk to me about the geography behind where you're doing business and also where you'd be willing to do business because, hey, man, we we live in a wired world, so somebody living down in Louisiana might hear this and might decide they want to give you a call and some of your dogs and that sort of thing. So talk to me a little bit about the geography behind where you're currently and where you'd like to do business. We're based in the north, but we offer nationwide services, and we have a rapid mobilization team plus an emergency response line. The moment that contract is signed, we are on the road. And we take that serious because most of our clients are down south below us, and it's not an issue. Dogs are very mobile, and they love to go. So we just load up, get down there, and get things going. By the time we're called, typically, time is money, and they want the problem solved quickly. So we respect that and basically make ourselves as available as possible to do that rapidly. Any final thoughts you might have? Anything that we missed out on? Anything that you feel we should reiterate? I'd like to give guests the final final word, if you will. That way it's not framed by me in any way. So the floor is yours. <laughs> well, like we were talking about, seeing is believing. We have social media with a lot of videos available showing what these dogs are capable of, and we post often. So feel free to check us out, Canine Pipe Inspections. You can find us on our website and all forms of social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you very much, Mick Hager with Canine Pipe Inspections. All right, I'd like to thank you once again for coming on the program. We're wrapping up here. That's what we've got going on, so we do our thank you to our guests here on the Multimedia Cafe. Mick Hager, Canine Pipe Inspections, and Ro Patterson, the author of Crude Blessings. Thank you very much for joining us today. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Multimedia Cafe. And from the staff of the Multimedia Cafe, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to savor life and enjoy the spice. Hey, way down Georgia on a train. Roads are getting muddy and the leaves are getting damp. Want to catch me a freight train to leave this town. Look at the door down the hobo. Who's hanging around? 
hoes with the hanging around. Casey Casey was a good engineer, told the brakeman not to fear. Pour on the wop, shovel on the coal, stick your head out the window, see my drivers roll. Stick your head out the window, see my drivers roll. One more time, let's pull it all in that railroad station out here and I see Fargo coming up. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. 